Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is founder of Groove U, Dwight Heckelman. First of all, there's something new that's happening in the music business, and it's kind of counterintuitive, and that's adding extra tracks to an album after it's been released. Yeah, you would think that, why would you want to do this? But this is thinking for an age when we're more about physical product. Nowadays, we find acts like Lizzo and Chris Brown and Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, and even Rod Stewart adding tracks to a release that may be just recent or maybe something that's been out for a while. The reason why is now in our streaming age, you're able to extend the life of a release by adding extra tracks to it. That's even if it came out recently. Artists that have done this have found that they're able to have the album tracks actually return to playlists after they dropped off. Also, another good reason for this is it counts towards the streaming numbers of the album. So if you happen to put something that's a hit or even a couple of songs that get moderate attention, that all helps the streaming numbers of the album. And it helps restart the conversation of the album as well. So this is a technique that's really starting to catch on. For the most part, it works. Again, very counterintuitive because you would think, well, why don't I just put out another release? But as with many things in the new music business, in the streaming music business, sometimes what worked in the old days might not work today and vice versa. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's a topic that's rather appropriate, I think, given the fact that the Grammys are going through a lot of turmoil these days. USC Annenberg Inclusive Initiative has just released the Inclusion in Recording Study. And this looked at females and their place in the music business, mostly looking at 800 popular songs that came out between 2012 and 2019. The results are pretty eye-opening, I think. What it found was the females were only in 22.5% of the songs as an artist. Now, most often, this was as a solo artist. As a matter of fact, 31% of the time. Females are only in bands 7% of the time, at least popular ones. As a producer, it's way worse. There is only 8 out of 1,093 songs. It's a 37 to 1 male to female ratio. And... As songwriters, only 12.5% of the songs had female songwriters, and most of those had major artists like Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande, Selena Gomez. They had most of the credits. Less than 1% of songs have female writers. Now, on the positive side, female Grammy nominees have actually been going up, and this year there's 20.5% as compared to 11.7% going back to 2013. I think something that's a really positive development in all this is the fact that there are more women, more girls, 
playing guitar these days, especially acoustic guitar. According to Fender, 50% of their acoustic sales go to females. So this is a positive development. We want to get more inclusion in the music business, and this is a good way to start. My guest today is Dwight Heckelman, who felt that music higher education needed to be held to a higher standard and would be a lot better if it were apprenticeship-based and relationship-driven. He called in his experience as a graduate of Belmont University at major and independent record labels, recording studios, music publishing, music journalism, as well as other college music industry programs, and then he took a leap of faith to create Groove U. The school offers a highly creative and cutting-edge two-year music industry program based on entrepreneurship and not one, but two apprenticeships. GrooveU features six music industry specializations that include audio production, music business, live sound, video, interactive, and independent. During the interview, he spoke about what it took to get a label job, starting a school from scratch, the real clients of a school, the ins and outs of internships, and much more. I spoke with Dwight via Skype from GrooveU's studio in Dublin, Ohio. So let's go back to the beginning. Tell me how you got started. Sure. So, um, well, when I was a senior in high school, I went to my uh, high school band instructor and I said, uh, hey, I want to do music, right? I'm, you know, I'm the usual kind of band geek and played in the bands, but I also ran sound for the theater department and uh, had a synth and a four track recorder and all that jazz. And uh he said, well, uh, you can get really good on your technique and you can compose for orchestra or you can get really good on your theory and you can write for orchestra or you can teach music. And I, uh, I didn't want to do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are all fine careers, but you know, that wasn't how I viewed myself in music. So I did kind of what any sensible young man would do, and I joined the Navy. Uh, <laughs> did you want to go to their music program? No, I, I had no real... No, I, I didn't, uh, because I, I sort of viewed that as, you know, again, more of a classical pursuit of being in, like, the Navy band was, you know, a performance classical pursuit. And uh, that wasn't how I consumed and enjoyed music. I, I really enjoyed uh, understanding the process of, of it, and I really enjoyed... Uh, for lack of a better word, you know, pop and commercial uh, pursuits of music. So, no, I actually went in as an aviation electronics te- technician. So I, I worked on airplanes uh, for four years. And um, when I got out of the Navy, uh, I still wanted to do music. So I, I did go to college. I went to a state college, started out as a music composition major. That took about a year and a half to suck all the love of music out of me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the school had a really small, like, you know, typical uh, converted classroom closet recording studio. Uh, so I, I started doing some audio production. I transferred to the business program and then went on to, um, to Belmont and actually graduated with my degree in uh, audio production, music business, and went on from there. But uh yeah, it was a little bit of a twist and turn to, to get me there. Okay, so I read that you did field marketing for Capital. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what field marketing is. 
Yeah, so, you know, it's glorified internship. Uh, street teaming, but we didn't really call it that back in the day. Uh, what happened was um, Capital had had some success. This is the early 90s. They'd had some success with breaking some major acts through college radio. Specifically, it was Everclear at the time. And uh, they were looking to sort of repeat that see if they could get college radio traction for some of these alternative and indie acts first. So my job was to go around to radio stations, you know, basically as a radio promotions person and convince them of the success of these bands. They were trying to go to all the local record stores and, and convince them to carry the product. Um, you know, when the bands would come through, uh, I would go to the shows and, you know, hype them up and, and hang posters beforehand. And yeah, just grunt work, really. But, uh, you know, kind of my that was really my first gig <laughs> uh, in the in the business side of the music business was was working college radio, local record stores and small venues to to, to try and break bands. That sounds like a pretty good experience, though, because you're dealing with everything on such a um consumer level shall we say right right yeah uh that it's you know i'm dating myself but i remember getting that gig there was a a little small ad in the back of the college newspaper and it said looking for field marketing for record label that was all it said and there was a phone number and a mailing address and i called this number probably twice a day <laughs> for like three weeks and I sent like three resumes and cover letters and I got a call back that said uh like three weeks later I said like, I'm gonna call until I just get an answer and the lady on the other end finally called me back and she's like well I gotta be honest like I, I filled that job like the day that you first started calling but you're, you're so persistent and and want it so bad I'm going to split the job and I'm going to give half of it to you. So that was sort of my first understanding of the persistence required to sort of be in this business. That's a good lesson, actually. It's a good lesson for everybody that if you really want something and you go after it, things might fall your way. I mean, within, I think, about two months, you know, the other person wasn't there anymore and it was kind of all mine. Mm. <laughs> so, okay. you know, that's another lesson, I guess, there too, to just get on your grind and and hustle. Where did he go from there? Um, when I graduated college, uh, I was had been interning in a recording studio uh, in Nashville. Uh, I continued to, to work for them. I got interested. Um, they were like most places in Nashville. You know, they had a recording studio. Uh, they did primarily demo work, um, and they had a music publishing arm attached to them, which was just a really small operation. And I peered over the wall and like, what's that? I mean, it's music publishing. What do they do? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, kind of started working both in the studio as a second and then uh, their music publishing. And eventually that led to a job that was the inverse of that. It was running a small music publisher that had a small boutique little studio inside of it. And uh, I did that. And uh, like most people, I think, uh, at that early stage of my career, my my side hustle was writing for Music Row magazine. 
know, which is a trade publication in Nashville. And uh, so I was writing for Music Row and I was uh, working uh, music publishing, uh, recording demos, cutting demos with the writers we had and, you know, pitching, plugging them, doing, you know, the production on most of the production on them. And um, yeah, and I did that for a good five or six years before, uh, you know, moving on to the next gig. Which was what? Oh, uh, so next gig was really interesting. Uh, I got the opportunity. This was all in Nashville, and I'm I'm from Ohio originally. And uh, an opportunity came up to head up a karaoke company, <laughs> 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 which sounds really weird. And and like you said earlier, kind of very consumerish. Uh, but it's basically like running a record label without an artist, which. Isn't always a bad thing, I guess. Um, <laughs> it has its advantages. It's a lot more music publishing than record label because it, this is still predating a lot of the internet things. Uh, there's this uh, opportunity to, you know, an album drops, and your job is to figure out the singles and get them onto the karaoke disc because by the time they actually hit, you know, you won't have enough production time to redo it. And I would go down to Nashville and cut the tracks with session players. And I was working out of Nashville and Ohio and then coming back. And uh, at the time, that side of the business was really, for lack of a better term, it was kind of dirty. Nobody was licensing songs. Hmm. And I wasn't about that because that's how I got paid prior to this gig. So I worked with all the labels at the time uh, to get legitimate licensing in place for all the karaoke that we did. And uh, that allowed us to secure accounts for the first time as a company, uh, the first karaoke company to secure major accounts with Walmart and Best Buy and Target and at the time Toys R Us. So uh, because all of our competitors were, were not properly licensed and that was, you know, sort of vaulted us. We perfect storm like lightning in a bottle. A lot of things in the industry. That was season one of American Idol. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't know it at the time. Uh, and so all of a sudden everybody's buying karaoke, right? And the company that I started up there, uh, went from zero to a little over 11 million in profit its first year, um, because of those accounts. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of my like foray into the operational entrepreneurial, uh, label side of things. And from there, from there, I realized kind of that that was removing me from a lot of the things that I really enjoyed about being in music, which was the process of production and, and kind of the edge of, of business. And uh, I decided I was going to leave that corporate world uh, and meetings in Bentonville with Walmart to uh, start a music industry program. I put it on paper, I pitched it around to about a dozen colleges here in Ohio, uh, a community college, technical college down in southeastern Ohio by the name of Hawking liked my proposal and hired me to chair that. They wanted to start a program, so I chaired that program for three years before um, sort of catching the attention of the right people at Berkeley who then asked me to come work at Berkeley. Well, I used to teach at Berkeley as well, but a really long time ago. You'll kind of appreciate this. So what caused me to quit 
was I was in the teacher's lounge one day <laughs> and uh, another teacher, an old guy, you know, retired from the every day of the music business came in and he started a bitch. This place is for rookies or has-beens. <laughs> and it hit me right between the eyes. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to be either one of those. <laughs> That's great. So I was out of there at the end of the semester. Yeah. Well, I guess my experience is a little different than that. I mean, I went there. My job was in uh, career development. So my job was to help Berkeley students get jobs. And um, the year that I was there, uh, Berkeley was um, hosting uh, a MIA conference, which is a music and entertainment industry educator association conference. And uh, I was like really excited about the fact that, you know, I was going to be with all these other educators and hear about educating for the future of the music industry. And as I went from like room to room and panel to panel and heard people talk, I, it was like I was in a time warp. It was like it was 1998 and educators were saying things like, well, you know, the music industry, it's, it's changing. And I'm like, no, it changed Ed. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, a, like a decade ago. I was writing for Music Row magazine when Joe Galente, uh, president of RCA Records, and Hilary Rosen from the RIAA, and it must have been uh, 1999, we had a big conference to talk about this new thing called Napster and MP3s, right? And, you know, that's when it changed for, for all of us that were trained for jobs that existed but no longer did. So... For me, it was really disheartening to hear that educators as a broad group, uh, and I'm, I'm not putting anybody in that barrel individually, but collectively, it didn't seem like we were uh, thinking about the jobs that were coming. We were still talking about the jobs that were and had been. And uh, I left there super dejected. I went back to my office. I penned my resignation letter to Berkeley and said, I'm sorry, but I'm... I'm, I'm, I think I can do better, and I'm going to go start my own school. <laughs> so that's what got me here. Okay, so GrooveU, tell me about it. Yeah, so uh, GrooveU is a two-year music industry entrepreneurship program. It's a diploma program, um, but it's two years of full-time work. We were sort of, when I came back to, to, to start this up, I wanted to shake off all my own conceptions and misconceptions about what education could be. So from from day one, the first thing we started doing was, you know, asking the question of the workforce is who are you hiring and, and why? Not now, but two years from now, right? So we could get an understanding of what employers really, really wanted uh, to get out of graduates of any type of program. And, you know, we learned which we knew, I guess I knew, but never thought about from an academic perspective is that, you know, number one, this is a relationship driven business. It's not talent driven. It's not money driven. It's driven by the quality of your relationships. Number two, it's an apprenticeship based business. So apprenticeship inside of education kind of shifts that paradigm about what classes and uh, how we train. And, you know, the third idea is that it's uh, a business of creative careers, meaning that you can't just be creative. You have to be a creative in how you approach your career and your career development. And with that idea in mind, 
you know, we set out to build a different curriculum and a different program. Um, it took about two years to raise the funds necessary to start the program, uh, but we opened in fall 2012 and uh, we just graduated our, uh, let's see, let's see, sixth class, seventh, seventh class this uh, past fall. Well, first class graduated 2014, so fifth class 2019. Yeah. Sixth class 2019. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. It's not easy to do. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, people say, how do you do it? And I, I, I say what was said to me about making a record. You, you do it kind of the same way you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. You know, you don't worry about the whole elephant. You just, just do it one bite at a time. And that's, that's where we got to. I'm not sure how it works in Ohio, but I'm sure it's similar. I had produced a number of programs for some schools here in California, and I was shocked at the paperwork that was involved. I mean, it, it, it was just enormous. And in one school, they had a full-time person just for this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of, I mean, there's there's bad faith actors in the market everywhere. And, you know, there's a lot of regulation to try and prevent that. And, you know, I think that certainly that was a challenge, but like any entrepreneur, the biggest challenge is for the longest time, you're, you're telling people how cool it's going to be, <laughs> hmm. right? And you have to get people to buy into the vision of like, no, it's going to be great. I know you can't see a building or a, a curriculum or a teacher or a product or whatever you're trying to make, but give me a chance and I'll show you how, how cool it's going to be. Uh, so that's probably the biggest challenge. And then, then when it gets there, then, then you actually have to deliver, right? Okay. Now I told you how cool it's going to be. I guess I got to actually make it, make it cool and compelling and interesting. And we like the word positively disruptive, you know, hmm. that it's a positively disruptive uh, place to attend. Okay. So give me the differences between GrooveU and let's say a traditional music or music business program. Yeah. So I think our biggest difference, you know, uh, we basically start our students out at their junior year, academically and in terms of workload. Uh, a student comes here, we don't have gen eds as any part of our curriculum. Uh, our students take the equivalent of 22 credit hours a term, but it's all music, all business. One of the things that we learned through uh, developing the program was if you're going to be in the music industry, you got to, it's kind of not unlike being an electrician on a lot of levels. You have to know something about everything, right? Uh, it's not enough to just sort of be really, really great at turning knobs. Someday, somewhere, somebody's going to ask you how to license a song. <laughs> and, and you better have an understanding of, of all the moving parts. So you need a, a really good foundational knowledge, and then you need to be really good at something. So if you're if you're going to be the guy or, or girl behind the board, turning the knobs, you, you you better be one of the best. So I think we look different there in that where most students at most schools by their junior year they're getting a course or two, and in their senior year they're getting maybe one advanced course by the time they graduate. You know, they're ready for advanced courses after their first year here and in their second year here, it looks a lot more like grad work. It's it's hugely project centric. It's deep dives into courses, not not just a, a mixing course. It's a mixing, mastering, sequencing course that occupies six hours of your week just for one course. 
uh, for 16 weeks of term. So we kind of push beyond what I can cover, what I could cover in a four-year curriculum. Also, when our students hit their last year, they undertake a really big portfolio capstone building project. And just as one practical example, if we've if we've done this right, last year uh, our students created a project called the Seasides, where they had Columbus. Uh, they went out and they found Columbus bands. They took those Columbus bands and had them cover other Columbus bands. They shot a video in the studio of the band performing a single, which was recorded here of that cover, hence the Seasides, the cover. They did a Tiny Desk style interview of the band inside of the studio. Uh, they licensed all the songs. They created recording contracts and artist contracts for all everything they did. They worked out distribution for all they did. They had it pressed to vinyl here at a vinyl shop in Columbus and put on a release event where the bands came out and performed uh, their songs for about 300 people. And so that involves students who are in the program from, you know, video students as one of our majors here. So videos got one job to do. Business students have another job to do. Audio production students have a job to do. Uh, live sound students have, have a job to do. And as instructors, we just take our hands off the wheel and let them create something amazing, hopefully, uh, every year. So I think that's a little bit different. I guess the last thing I'd say is in terms of curriculum, our students do two internships. And I think we're, as far as I know, we're the only two-year school in the country that sends them out for, for two internships and that type of work experience before they graduate. Well, I want to get back to that in a second. But first of all, one of the things I noticed when I go and I speak at colleges and I speak all over the world, most colleges, universities, schools, as you say, they're fighting the last war to some degree where they're talking about getting jobs when they leave. But, you know, that's not the music business. The music business is everyone's an entrepreneur. At least sometime you're an entrepreneur. You may have a job, but it's short-lived. It's not like you're going to have it for life. So you, you have to have entrepreneurial chops. And there are not many schools, there are a few, but there are not many that actually teach that. But it sounds like you're oriented that way. So yeah, our students get a business core to what they do in that they're taking a standard business to understand accounting, economics, finance. That's one course that they get their first year. In their second year, they get a entertainment law and business law course. And they get an entrepreneurship course. And then the last course they get at Grooveview is a careers course where they have to create a side hustle. Huh. They have to create an entire business plan, including funding it, where they have to pitch and market. And we have SCORE come in and other business leaders come in and evaluate like everything from the financials. Like, What is your side hustle? Because you're either going to have one or you're going to need one, <laughs> or it's going to be something for you someday. I think according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, we learned through some of our research that if you take the broader media arts, right, like music, film, video, graphic design, 40% of those in the media arts straight claim themselves as self-employed, right? So yeah. that means they are entrepreneurs, right? And I like to say that the running joke is, it looks more like 80% because you either are one or you're working for one. Yeah, right, right. 
you're either an entrepreneur or you're an intrapreneur. You're, you're, you need to be someone who's probably at a small business. You're probably at a two or three person studio as a freelancer, right? So if you're not full time there, you're, you're, you're freelancing, you're thinking like an entrepreneur and you're working for an entrepreneur. So it's so core to what we do in the industry that I, I, it kind of baffles me that how you alluded to that it doesn't get discussed and it doesn't get taught or considered for that matter. In All right. Many yeah, cases. Yeah. Let's talk about internships. I know here in Los Angeles at the larger studios, they're always looking for interns, but the fact of the matter is, and, and there are so many because there's so many programs, but the fact of the matter is there are a lot of schools, many with names that everyone knows that are not even considered most of the time because they're poorly trained and poorly prepared. So it sounds like for you, it must be different because if you make it a requirement for them to have two entrepreneurships, that's, you know, one is hard enough. Getting two is, um, well, it's above and beyond. So how does that work? Sure. So I think that's a great question. And I think, I think you're exactly right. It, it you know, way we, we start our students working on their internships beginning their very first day of class. The other thing that maybe how I approach this a little bit differently is our students are not our real clients, which sounds a little weird to say. We view our clients as the job market, the employers that are out there. So what I'm trying to do, what I'm what we're trying to do is we're we're trying to deliver employees and clients to those people that are already out in the job market. One of the ways we do that is every month that we're in session, we have advisory meetings with groups of people in the music industry. So um, last month was audio production. So we'll bring in eight or 10 studio owners to sit around the table and talk about their challenges and who they're hiring and what type of skills they want. We'll do video. So we stay at least locally as much as we can. We stay really hyper connected to that field that we're sending these interns to. I think that really helps us in terms of you know getting the interns there. But our internships also occur at at two levels. Uh, our students go their first year, so they'll go fall, spring, and then they'll do their first internship. And we set up the internships and the coordination with those employers to look less like an internship and, I, for lack of a better term, more like job shadowing. Do you understand how a studio makes its money? Do you understand what it looks like day in and day out? Can you be the fly on the wall? You don't. You need to understand you don't have a lot to contribute yet, so don't make a fool of yourself by going in there and grabbing, you know, the fader. Uh, you know, be quiet, be observant. You know, really understand uh, the business. Their second intern, then they go fall and spring again, and at that point, of course, they're if they're if they're an audio production student, for example, they're taking more and more advanced classes. They've they've got this big capstone project under their belt. They're done academically, and then they have to do a second internship before they graduate. So we actually graduate students on the first day of classes in the fall. That that second summer is a summer of internships. And at that point, they've been to South by Southwest twice. We do projects in our local community every month. So hopefully they're heavily interfaced. They have good portfolio work. They have real skills. 
they've drilled it down their internship from a field of, like you said, you know, five or six studios that they could be at to one that really understand, they really understand. And then they're interning there on a higher level with higher expectations. So when we preface it that way to employers and to students and kind of do a farm team first, uh, I think it really helps. And our students do go to LA and New York and Nashville and addition to locally here to intern, but we, we keep so engaged with those employers. I mean, I call them two or three times during the course of a 16 week internship. How can I coach the student better? What do they need to know? How are they not delivering for you? What do we need to do as an institution to make them better for you? Uh, I think that maybe gives us a little bit more of an advantage over, Hey, go find an internship. I'll see you in 16 weeks. I hope it goes well for you. <laughs> right. And there's no closing of the loop between the student and the employer and the school. Sometimes Los Angeles seems fairly small in terms of jobs and internships and things like that. So you're staying mostly local in the Columbus area how large a community, a musical community is there? Uh, I think there's a, a significant, I think like any sort of mid-sized to large city, there's a, a, a large community here. I mean, there's dozens of recording studios. There's, you know, we have big event production companies like Live Technologies and Mills James are headquartered here. But I think you also alluded to the fact that I think the music industry itself is not all that large, not all that dissimilar from a college campus and that you're only two stages removed from kind of anybody. So I think with an understanding of, of that as it relates to internships and employability, you know, you start to develop a, a different approach to how you network and how you engage other people inside of the industry. So that's something we really work hard with our students on is, yeah, you know, you can go to LA and you can compete with other, other peers for these jobs and these internships. You can stay local and you can do it, but it, it doesn't really matter because the industry itself is, is pretty small at the end of the day. The music industry is changing at a very fast pace. How do you keep pace with that? So I think there's a couple things that we're able to do that it might set us apart a little bit. Uh, one is, like I said, every month we're meeting with industry people and we have a series of questions that we ask. One of the questions that we ask is, all right, how has your workload shifted from this year to last year, right? What are you doing more of from this time, time we talked six months ago or last year to this year so that we can get a sense of, of where the shifts are happening? So I think that's, that's really helpful for us to, to be you know, hyper-engaged with employers. We ask them that question. Another great question we like to ask is, hey, if I gave you $50,000 to grow your business, just came out of fell out of the sky and it fell in your lap and you have it to spend. What do you spend it on? Is, you know, is it a, a new piece of gear? Is it is do you invest in people and what type of people uh, do you invest in? So I think that really helps. Uh, another thing that helps is a good portion of of our instructors here are actually still working in the industry. This is kind of their side hustle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 
they're seeing it pretty actively. Uh, our requirement to be employed at Grooveview is, uh, you know, we, we want you to, we need you to have your degree in your field. Um, but we also need you to either have owned or been senior management at a small business before you can work here. So that eliminates a lot of the career academics because if you've managed a small business, chances are you you probably haven't invested in your doctorate. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I think that really you know sets us apart as well to, to keep sort of on that that edge of where's the field going because if we're training for how it is now, we're behind. You know, the by the time the student gets out, that that job or that skill doesn't exist. But if I shift that just a little bit, there's things that are always, always, always important. And, you know, the soft skills are so important in terms of this industry. You know, you, you, we ask employers what they want and they never say, well, I need someone who, who can run Pro Tools 10.4.6.beta3, you know, and if they can't, right? Then, you know, you never hear that from an employer. You hear, I need people who are humble, people who are adaptable, people who are on time and present and, and fully engaged, people I can train, people I can grow into other positions in my company. I don't want to hire, you know, the one trick ponies. And I think what might help set us apart is we have a whole system here where we're coaching students through those soft skills. I still don't know if I can teach it, but I can, I can coach it. Or I'm pretty sure I can coach it. And there's a real consequence here for, for not taking that seriously. I mean, you can graduate this program and not have those characteristics, but we have a scorecard and you don't get endorsed by us if you don't carry those characteristics to a certain level. So, you know, a job comes across our desk and, you know, we're pretty well connected. We get lots of job opportunities that come across. If the student doesn't have if we look at their, their diploma and they don't have what we want, we won't recommend them for a job. Uh, we won't even tell them about the job. You know, that's, that, that, that hurts. That's because our clients again are, is the workforce. It's not really the student. What are the challenges that you're facing, Dwight? I, you know, there's a certain stigma associated with the idea of being a private, independent, for-profit institution, which I am, where it kind of I'm nicely brazenly. <laughs> um, uh, there's a certain stigma, but uh, you know our results are speaking for themselves as it relates to that. So maybe that's a little less of a, of a challenge. Our historical challenge has just been gaining credibility. You know that we're, we can do something good, and that we can churn out quality young men and women who uh, who are really serious about being in the industry, who aren't hobbyists. They're they're true professionals, but they're starting to we're starting getting to the point now that that's, that's happening and they're developing their own reputations and, and securing their own careers. One of, one of our challenges that we've had to meet is growth. My institution is capped at 48 students. And initially we thought, Oh, well, we could be bigger than that. We could, we could serve a, a population that was larger than that. But we came to the conclusion and realization as we as we grew that really, if we're going to take students to South by Southwest every year, if we're going to get projects in the local community every month for every student to do, 
if we're going to get quality internships, there's a real practical limit to the size of a, of a school if you're going to be that invested in student success. You know, we have a four to one lab to class ratio. Well, you know, if you've got even 200 students, what size does your building need to be if you can give every student four hours of lab time yeah. for every class, right? There's, a, there's real practical limitations to, to what that feels like. And that's been a big challenge as we've managed that and adjusted our expectations to let's commit to a certain size, let's commit to student success at a certain level. And, you know, we'll never be bigger than that. There will, we won't add on, we won't expand, we won't. This is just who we are. And I think that pays its own dividends in the quality of, of graduates we can churn out rather than the quantity. Well, we can keep on going here. I have so many questions for you, but I know you're busy, so I'm not going to keep you too much longer. As a matter of fact, this is the last question. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Bobby, for everything that you've done for the growth of the education side of this industry. I mean, uh, your texts and now your your multimedia, your podcasts, I mean, they're becoming a standard and we, we love them and appreciate them. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? I, I think that, you know, I'm a little bit of a serial entrepreneur and so there's there's things that I've I've picked up as it related to that, but you know there's I think the thing that I've really learned as a part of being in business is this idea that being in the music business is not hard necessarily from an intellectual standpoint, and it's not hard necessarily from a strictly talent standpoint. It is incredibly challenging from a persistence standpoint. And I think that one of the things that I've learned uh, is that most people give up. (laughs) And I think you win in this business on some level, in, in, in being an entrepreneur on some level, simply through attrition. That at the end of the day, you're continuing to do it no matter how difficult it is, no matter how little money you have to take in the short term, you know, all to make it happen simply because most people will quit before real success starts to come their way because it's, it's, it's such a long ball approach. And, you know, it took me a long time to get, get the school running. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going around every day talking about what I'm doing and how I'm accomplishing it. And, you know, I think after a year or so, people were surprised, like, well, you're still here trying to get this thing going? Like, yeah, I'll still be here in another eight months, then another nine months, then another year, still working on getting this going. And then when it's going, that's just kind of the first step. Now I'm ready to actually do something. And that's going to be a whole other long, long, long term process. And any institution that I've been a part of, you know, in publishing or recording studios or whatever the case might be, it's the people who have that. I'm going to get up every day and do it, even when there's 900 pounds of pressure sitting on my chest and I don't know how I'm going to pay my next bill. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like I literally don't know how I'm going to meet payroll or how, you know, this loan note is coming due. I don't know how it's going to get paid, but I'm going to get up and find a way to do it today. You know, that's what gets you there. It's it's really not having the next smartest idea or whatever the case might be. It's simple, dogged persistence. 
That's great advice. And it's advice that I've seen work here in Los Angeles as well, where the people I started with, the ones that have stuck it out are the ones that are successful. Right. I graduated in a December class uh, at, you know, like I said, at Belmont, and I can count on one hand of the 130 people in that class, those who actually are in the business today. Yeah. You know, why is that? We all had the same training and the same opportunities. And, you know, I get people's lives changed, but it's the, the people who I know did it, just stuck with it through dogged persistence and taking every bend in the road is, you know, not the end of the road unless you don't take that turn. Right. So they took those turns over and over and over again, just to keep progressing. You can find out more about Dwight and GrooveU at GrooveU.edu. That's all one word, GrooveU, letter U, dot E-D-U. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it in iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.